Ever wonder what history's most famous and infamous people would say if you asked them for their side of the story? Well, here's your chance. You're listening to Hindsight, an original podcast by Al Jazeera. I'm Charles Dance. This is a dramatized series based on historical events that resurrect some of the world's most memorable figures. In this episode, we meet Russia's last and longest ruling empress, Catherine the Great. In hindsight, her rise to power was no accident. Catherine had dedicated her life to Russia and clung on through years of a cold and loveless marriage to get to the throne. She skillfully maneuvered her way up, using her network of influential connections formed in and out of the bedroom. Hindsight, you've heard of them, but now it's time you hear from them. The year is 1762. We're in Russia, and a woman is about to do the unthinkable, dethrone her husband and take his crown. And when she seizes it, she will do whatever she can to hold on to it. This is exactly how I imagined my victory pray to be. Riding through the streets of St. Petersburg on my white stallion, with 14,000 horsemen behind me, the crowd screaming for me, falling to their knees. <laughs> and my husband has no idea what's about to happen. The woman who leads this grand procession is from a family of minor nobles, an outsider born and raised in enemy Prussia, a German without a drop of Russian blood. But she's worked hard to gain the trust and admiration of the Russian people, most importantly, the Russian nobility. The woman who will become known as Catherine the Great stands in front of a mirror wearing full army regalia. She is about to take over what is, at that moment, the largest empire in the world. I'm ready. It's time to greet my people. Oh, hey, Empress Catherine! Empress Catherine! Catherine. I was born in 1729. I was known then as Princess Sophie Federica Auguste of Anhalt-Zerbist. My father was a Prussian prince, but despite our noble blood, we were far from wealthy. We had no land, no money. We were constantly on the edge of ruin. At least, that's how my mother made it feel like. Catherine had four siblings, but only she and her younger brother Frederick would make it to adulthood. The death of a child is one thing Catherine and her mother would end up having in common. For now, though, there was no love lost between the two ladies of the house of Anhalt Zerbest. My mother was bitter. We lived in a provincial garrison town, and it wasn't the grand cosmopolitan life she'd imagined for herself. Growing up, she had pinned her hopes on my brothers marrying well. She barely took notice of me. Until there was no one else left to control. 
Catherine's mother, Johanna, was enterprising. Obsessed with reviving her family's fortunes, she set out to arrange a socially advantageous marriage for the young princess. But the competition was fierce. The Anhalt Zerbst were usually at the back of the queue, coming as they did from a poor, politically insignificant province in German-speaking Prussia. Prussia, at its height, stretched from central to eastern Europe. Today, it is mainly Germany and Poland. The pressure on Catherine was immense, and relations between mother and daughter were strained. Every day was an endless drill of etiquette, the right way to curtsy. Arms at your sides. How to be demure and agreeable. Chin down. Don't gag yourself doing it. My happiness didn't factor into her plans. She was only concerned with my prospects. I don't want to hear anything more of it, Catherine. We need the money. You will marry whom I choose. Yes, Mama. Your French is coming along. Imperative, of course, to keep the lesser class from understanding and gossiping about our lives. But your Russian is lacking. You will need all of the diplomatic languages. You'll need to make up for your looks if we're to find a good match for this family. I wasn't yet ten when my mother started parading me around the minor courts of Prussia. She was desperate to cultivate whatever social and political connection she could. Sometimes we were away from home for months at a time. I was lonely, though that was nothing new. My brother Wilhelm received all of my mother's love. I never knew what that felt like. As Catherine toured the royal circuit, a new reign began in Russia. Elizabeth, daughter of Peter the Great, became empress in a midnight coup in 1741. She was unmarried and childless. Finding a legitimate heir to secure the Romanov dynasty was crucial. She selected her orphaned nephew, Charles Peter Ulrich of Schleswig-Holstein-Gottorp. Peter, German-born, was 14 when he reluctantly came to Russia. Look what the Empress of Russia sent us. Such a beautiful frame. Catherine, we're going to Berlin. We must get your likeness painted this instant. Elizabeth was once engaged to Johanna's late brother, and young Catherine and Peter were second cousins. The familial ties were there, but strategically, Prussia's King Frederick II had just started the War of Austrian Succession. Russia's Elizabeth needed allies. The Anhalt Zerbts got an invitation. Is that it? We're ten hours into this sitting, and I look just the same as all the other generic princesses. I can't see how this is going to work. It worked. Mother, it's a letter from Russia. It says... The Empress is charmed by the expressive features of the young princess. Mother, the Empress has summoned us to the royal court. And with that, young Catherine was off to the royal court of Russia. It was the winter of 1744, and the roads were icy, but we had no choice. Elizabeth wanted to meet as soon as possible. My feet are freezing. Enough moaning, Catherine. The trip took six weeks. When I could bear to look up, I saw how the snow-covered field stretched for miles on end. Could this land one day be mine? 
could Peter and I become husband and wife? We had met when I was ten at the Prussian court. I didn't think much of him then. He was all eyes and no chin. He was also terribly immature. Perhaps he'd grown up since then? To Elizabeth's despair, her nephew Peter was socially awkward, sickly, and slow to learn. Even worse, he rejected everything Russian, including the language. Catherine and her mother were not to be deterred. Look, it's Moscow. I can see the Golovin Palace in the torchlight. We best get some rest. Big day tomorrow. How do I look? Stand up straight. Elongate that neck. Purse those lips. Huh, you'll have to do. It's Peter. Peter, how wonderful to see you again. You're looking healthy. Yes, we are ready. How is the Empress today? My mother took Peter's arm, and I followed behind as he led us through the palace. Your Majesty, it is an honor. Elizabeth wore a tall black feather in her hair, and her dress had an immense hoop. She was a large woman. I was struck by her beauty and the majesty of her bearing. My mother immediately started rambling. It was embarrassing. Eventually, formalities turned to discussions of politics, including the potential match between Peter and I. While the adults talked... Catherine and Peter sat together. So how do you like it here? I like Russia, from the little I've seen of it so far. Peter was thin, delicate, features his tutors had cared nothing for. As a young child, he'd been forced to kneel on dried peas. Walking the next day was painful. He was the grandson of the famed Peter the Great, after all. He needed to be toughened up. But what Peter really wanted was a confidant. Well, I miss Prussia. I'm glad you're from there, too. I feel like I can trust you. Peter told me that he was in love with one of Elizabeth's ladies-in-waiting. He wanted to marry her, but had to follow his aunt's wishes. Yes, tact wasn't one of Peter's strengths, and it wouldn't be the last time he'd be dismissive of the young princess's feelings. I didn't quite understand it back then. All I knew was that I needed to impress the Empress. The bright, bookish Catherine and the childish Peter were a bad match. But to Elizabeth, Catherine appeared to not only be mature and intelligent, she came from a poor, humble province. Yes, Catherine would be grateful and therefore compliant, she thought. Big mistake. Elizabeth invited my mother and I to live in Russia. I was determined to do everything I could to prove myself. I stayed awake each night, pacing barefoot on the cold floor of my bedroom to practice, practice, practice. I knew that I would never win the hearts of the Russian people if I sounded like a German, a foreigner. Perfecting my Russian became an obsession and it nearly killed me. 
I caught pneumonia. I became so sick my mother called for a Lutheran pastor to read my last rites. But even at death's door, I insisted on a Russian Orthodox priest. Elizabeth was impressed. I recovered. And as soon as I could, I converted to the Orthodox Church. On acceptance of the Russian faith, Princess Sophie Fridarike Augusta will now be known as Yekaterina Alexievna. Elizabeth chose the name Yekaterina, or Catherine, to honor her own late mother. The following day, Catherine and Peter were formally engaged, in spite of her mother nearly ruining everything. I beg your forgiveness, Your Majesty. I promise you, I wasn't spying. Turns out Mother had been sending letters to King Frederick of Prussia, sharing information about the Russian court. Elizabeth was furious. She told Mother she'd have to leave Russia after the wedding. No exception. Elizabeth was anxious to see Peter and Catherine marry. She needed that heir. But privately, there was another matter to contend with. Doctors had told her the Grand Duke was still too young. He had yet to reach puberty, and he also needed time to recover from smallpox. Yes, we were all worried for his health. But when he finally recovered and emerged from his bed, ugh, the disease had ravaged him. He was pallid and horribly scarred. Deep pockmarks disfigured his face. Catherine, do... do you recognize me? He was hideous. This was the man I was to marry? The trials a princess must go through. Catherine's obvious reaction wounded Peter, and he withdrew completely. But Elizabeth remained steadfast. She needed to secure the line of succession. Catherine and Peter married on August the 21st, 1745, when they were 16 and 17, respectively. Elizabeth spared no expense. She wanted the wedding and Russia to be the talk of Europe. The day's events had been carefully choreographed, but when it came to my wedding night, I was entirely unprepared and alone. I asked my maids what to expect, but they were just as naive as I was. Still, I understood something was meant to happen. Catherine went back to her room alone and waited for Peter to join her. An hour passed, then another. Should I get up again? Should I stay in bed? I have no idea. Peter? But it wasn't my husband. It was my lady-in-waiting, coming to tell me that Peter was out with his friends. I was so confused, but I didn't dare go to sleep. Finally, when it was almost dawn, he came home. It was not, as I now know, the typical wedding night. He's playing with his toy soldiers again. He's obsessed with them. <sighs> If Peter had been capable of affection or willing to show any, I would have loved him. But Peter wouldn't touch me, 
Even when Elizabeth forced us to sleep in the same room and kept a lady in waiting outside the door to make sure he didn't leave. Instead, Peter would lay his precious toy soldiers out on the sheets and play with them in the middle of the night. <laughs> I didn't even get a small part in the war reenactments. It would be nine years before Catherine and Peter consummated their marriage. Nine years of humiliation and utter loneliness. I was miserable. Peter drank too much and insulted me in front of everyone. So I set out to counter that by trying to impress Elizabeth and those at court. At every turn, I learned the politics of aristocracy. And power. In private, she threw herself into her studies and correspondence. I used to exchange letters with my friend, the British ambassador, Charles Hanbury Williams. I'd confess how tough I found life in the Russian court, but I refused to give in to self-pity. If only you knew all the perils and misfortunes that have threatened me and that I have overcome. Back then, my only confidants were pen pals, and I was a prodigious letter writer. Books became my company too. I read the works of Europe's great minds, Montesquieu, Voltaire, and Diderot. I devoured all the literature I could get my hands on. Learning was my refuge, and I was determined to put this lonely time to good use. I knew my role was to produce an heir, but, well, I'd hoped that by becoming enlightened, new opportunities would open up for me. Catherine, now 22 years old, never really knew love. Growing up, her parents had barely paid her any attention. Her husband preferred to share a bed with toy soldiers or other women. And Elizabeth, famous for her mercurial temper, was losing patience with Catherine for not providing her with an heir. It's perhaps no wonder Catherine's love life became synonymous with her rule. I cannot live one day without love. <laughs> While Peter played with his tin soldiers, I fell in love with a real one. Sergei Seltikov, an officer in the Russian army. He was extremely charming. And a womanizer looking for a new pursuit. Because of her unusual relationship with Peter, Catherine was still rumored to be a virgin. Sergei Saltikov couldn't resist the challenge. Sergei was four years older than I. He quickly took me into his confidence. He'd tell me how he'd chosen the wrong woman, how he was trapped and lonely in his marriage. I recognized that feeling. Sergei showered her with compliments and seduced her with the promise of love. She fell for him and into bed with him. My son Paul was born in the autumn of 1754. To relief... I was a mother at last, but in name only. I was still lying in my delivery bed, exhausted and bleeding, when Elizabeth took him from me. He is my child. I'll look after him. Please, Your Majesty, don't take him. No. Oh, no. No. I had fulfilled my duty. Elizabeth assembled her own team of tutors and guardians to raise him. He belonged to Russia. 
We were separated at birth, Polly and I. We never became close. The birth of a male heir secured Catherine's place in the royal family, but persistent rumours about his parentage kept the court gossips entertained during the long St. Petersburg nights. As for my Sergei, Elizabeth sent him on a diplomatic mission to Sweden. Oh, the despair. Both my child and my lover had been taken away. What next? The Seven Years' War, that's what. In 1756, hostilities ramped up between Russia and her old rival, Prussia. King Frederick II was expanding his territory again. Despite her failing health, Elizabeth took Russia to war. And in that time, Catherine fell in love once again. Stanislav, darling, don't worry. When I am Empress, I will help you take the throne of Poland. And here we see the beginnings of Catherine the Great. She will keep her promise to Stanislav Paniotowski. He was weak, and that would work in Russia's favor. For now, however, there was no talk of politics. Catherine gave birth to her second child, a girl, Anna Petrovna, named by Elizabeth after her late sister. But she too was whisked away to be raised by the Empress. Sadly, Anna wouldn't live long enough to see her mother's reign. She only survived 15 months. There's no more to say about that. Enough. Catherine never spoke of her daughter's death, not even in her memoirs. Then in 1762, Elizabeth, the Empress of Russia, died of a stroke. People poured into the St. Petersburg Cathedral for her funeral. Catherine took her death hard, or at least that's how it looked. She prayed at the altar in full view of everyone as they arrived. I won the hearts of the Russian people. Peter's behavior, on the other hand, left much to be desired. Boring. <laughs> Peter, show some decorum. Don't you scold me, you miserable fool. He was the fool. He was drunk, disrespectful, and he openly flouted the traditions of orthodoxy. When he became emperor, Peter put in motion a series of policies to upturn the structure of Russian society, starting with what he considered the excessive wealth and influence of the Orthodox Church. My dear nobles, he's ordered the removal of all the icons from the churches. He's even tried to force the Orthodox priests to shave their beards off and adopt Lutheran practices. Of course, they're resisting. <laughs> I know. His actions border on insanity. My husband was even worse at foreign policy. He withdrew from the Seven Years' War. He not only signed a peace treaty with Prussia, but allied himself with its king. The Russian army was furious. Those lives had been sacrificed for nothing. And to add to the humiliation, he forced the soldiers to dress in Prussian uniforms. 
They hated him. Unlike Catherine, Peter had never managed to sever ties to his homeland. This would prove to be his undoing. Of course, my husband never involved me in his decision-making. I kept my distance, working on my own alliances. One of her most important allies would be her lover, Grigory Orlov, an influential military officer. He too was infuriated with Peter and his foreign policies. My dear Grigory, you fought so hard for that land. He's a blundering fool. He just can't let go of his obsession with Prussia. Grigory and his four brothers were all officers in the prestigious Preobrajansky Regiment. They were the cream of the Russian military, handsome, brilliant sportsmen, and most importantly, popular with their fellow soldiers. Together, on the other side of the Winter Palace, they plotted to overthrow the new emperor. Thank you, my dear Grigory. I know I can count on you, and I might need your assistance soon. Peter wants a divorce, I'm sure of it. He's been parading that harlot about in public as if she were his wife. I was in an incredibly vulnerable position. I'd heard that Peter was planning to marry his mistress, Elizabeth Voronsova. I knew the fate of discarded Russian royal spouses well. I had read my history books. Peter would have me banished to a convent. Everything I'd worked for. The years of solitude, my studies on Russia, politics, making connections with the enlightened across Europe and the aristocrats here at home. Nearly 18 years of being publicly humiliated by that insolent fool. No, I would not be banished. But Grigory, we must pick our moment carefully. Timing was everything, as was discretion. Catherine was pregnant, her growing belly hidden in a tightened corset. While she had many lovers during her loveless marriage, the child likely belonged to Grigori. And if Peter found out, there was no way that he'd accept the child as his own. Not now. I had to bide my time, stay home and out of sight, and hide my pregnancy. Alexei Grigorievich was born in 1762. He was immediately whisked away, only this time he was raised by one of Catherine's confidants. With the stage set, the time had come for another coup. Peter was on holiday in a Raunenbaum and left me behind in St. Petersburg. No surprise there but he would be in for a surprise when he returned. It was the middle of the night, July the 8th, 1762. I opened the door to find Alexei, Grigory's younger brother. No one could see us. We hurried through the darkness to a waiting carriage, which took us to the army barracks. My dear Grigory had rallied a small group of his soldiers. I stood before them and made a simple plea. My life is at risk. I need your protection. Without it, I fear my husband will murder me. I fear he will forsake Russia 
and her power to satisfy his own reckless desires. In return for their support, I promised to turn Russia into a great military power. The soldiers needed little convincing. They already loathed Peter for his adoration of the Prussian king and retreat from the war. They needed little convincing to turn against him. The soldiers agreed, falling to the floor and kissing her feet. Catherine declared herself colonel of the Preobrajensky regiment. Now, if you could kindly lend me your jacket, and that hat too. Thank you. She dressed herself in the bottle green uniform, but even though she had Russia's soldiers behind her, she still needed the blessing of the church. We rode straight to the Kazan Cathedral in St. Petersburg, where the Archbishop declared me Russia's true ruler. Peter was still in his summer home, oblivious. I, your empress, am the defender of the old Greek Orthodox Church, shaken by the suppression of its traditions. I mounted my white stallion and led 14,000 soldiers on horseback on my victory parade around St. Petersburg. Not bad for a 33-year-old poor noble from Prussia. The army, the church, the nobles, everyone was behind me. By declaring her absolute loyalty to Russia and its church, Russia declared its loyalty to her. The next morning, Peter returned to the Peterhof Palace to celebrate his name day. Where is everyone? As Peter looked around the empty palace, he suddenly realized what was happening. Catherine? It was too late. I sent the Orlov brothers to arrest Peter. They forced him to sign his abdication papers that same day. Not that he put up a fight. <laughs> he gave in quickly, drunk and weeping. After just six short months, Peter's reign was over. His idol, Frederick the Great of Prussia, noted that the emperor had abandoned his throne like a child being sent to bed. It was one of the most effortless, bloodless coups in history. Eight days after being dethroned, Peter was dead. The cause? Well, that's harder to say. They say it was hemorrhoidal colic. What an unfortunate way to die. An unfortunate ending or a cover-up for murder. There are varying accounts about how Peter III died. A drunken fight with his guard being one. The man watching over him was, after all, someone close to Catherine, her lover's brother, Alexei Orlov. One thing was certain. Peter's death would cast a shadow over Catherine's reign. Catherine began her reign with characteristic extravagance. She showered the army and nobility with promotions, money, and gifts. She rewarded Grigore Orlov with a promotion and money, but he wanted more. What to do? 
He's done so much for me and I do love him, but marriage, things are different now. She was an empress now. She could marry anyone she wanted. But Catherine decided that a soldier husband, however high his rank, was beneath her. So she broke it off. But this wasn't her last affair. And if she knew her colorful love life was starting to tarnish her reputation, she didn't seem to care. Also, she was too busy to care. She had an empire to rule. In 1762, Russia was seen as backwards-looking, isolated both culturally and geographically. When I became empress, I set out to continue the work of my idol, Peter the Great. We needed to westernize Russia, move it closer to Europe, to a point, of course. I transformed the Russian court into a cosmopolitan hub, a meeting place for Europe's politicians, intellectuals, and artists. Dignity, grace, and sparkling conversation. Oh, goodness, too kind. My dress. Well, thank you. It is extravagant, but then, why not? Catherine's court was a lavish place. She spent one in every ten rubles of the state budget on decadent balls and diplomatic parties. But her quick wit and charm made just as much of an impression. George McCartney, the special envoy from Britain, reportedly said he was struck by the astonishing magic of her company. You know what people really like, though? Being listened to. I never forgot to do that either. Russia had a long tradition of autocratic rulers. Catherine had seen the dangers of absolute power, and she wrestled with the question of how to rule well. She consulted the essays of Voltaire and Montesquieu. If I'm fair and reasonable, then what's the problem with making the decisions? She eventually reached a conclusion that suited her. Someone had to be in charge after all, and I knew what was best for my people. I was an enlightened autocrat. Well, that's one way of putting it. That painting is a delight. I'll take it. I wanted to share my love of the arts and make it accessible to Russians. I founded the Hermitage Museum with my private collection. I had the best books translated into Russian. I opened free schools to improve education. I even set up a national vaccination program against smallpox. I had the first injection myself. See, nothing to worry about. Could hardly feel a thing. In the first years of her reign, Catherine published The Instruction, a manifesto that set out her vision for a progressive Russian empire, one that was liberal, humanitarian, and upheld the rule of law. She failed to get it approved. I strengthened Russia's police force and cracked down on the country's crime rates. I also proposed a plan to abolish serfdom. You philosophers are lucky men. You write on paper and paper is patient. Unfortunate empress that I am, I write on the skins of susceptible human beings. 18th century Russia was effectively divided into two classes. The nobles, who held all the power, 
and the peasants. Most of the peasants were serfs, agricultural slaves whose free labor fueled the economy. It was an uncomfortable reality for Catherine, who prided herself on elevating the ordinary Russian. Those poor people with an unbearable yoke around their necks, bought and sold at the whim of their owners. I tried to change things for them. I really did. But I also had to keep the nobility on side, and that required some concessions. During her reign, Catherine gave away thousands of state-owned peasants to become private serfs, essentially owned by the landowner. Some concessions. For the upper class, it truly was a golden age. Catherine carried on with another part of her agenda, expanding Russia's borders. I kept my promise to Stanislav. In 1764, I dispatched my army to ensure he was made king. He was weak, and I expected him to keep Poland that way. But he betrayed me. King Poniatowski didn't do what she wanted him to do. He wanted to modernize reforms, but in the end, Poland's borders were weakly defended, and her neighbors took advantage of that. The country was partitioned. Russia got a piece of the pie. At the risk of becoming a bore, I have nothing to report to you but victories. I remember writing that letter to Voltaire. I wrote to him often and to my dear Diderot. The French philosopher Denis Diderot once said of Catherine that she possessed the charm of Cleopatra and the soul of Caesar. It was good to talk to someone outside of my circle about Russia's battles and achievements. We were busy. Russia was already vast, but Catherine wanted more, and Russia fell in line with her demands. Russia needs the ocean. Our ambitions are landlocked. We must take the Black Sea and make it Russia's pond. In 1768, Catherine went to war with Russia's old enemy, the Ottoman Empire. But two years into the battle, Russian soldiers in Moldova began to suffer from a fever. They were dying by the hundreds. A war and a plague. What a wretched combination. In 1771, the bubonic plague reached Moscow. Contaminated buildings were burnt to the ground. The rich fled to the countryside. The poor were thrown out on the streets. People were angry. I sent Grigory Orlov to settle the matter. He enforced the quarantine, and slowly things turned around. We carried on with the war and forced the Ottomans into a peace treaty in 1774. The Crimean Khanate gained independence, but it was under my control. We also inherited a vast part of the Black Sea and strategic port cities. I was not one for bloodshed. I did only what was necessary to Russia's interests. I wanted peace. But that didn't happen. Tens of thousands of Russian and Turkish soldiers were killed. Civilians were forced into Russian rule. And then, deep in the Ural Mountains, one of the greatest threats to Catherine's reign was stirring. Yemelin Pugachev. 
Peter was long dead, but that information hadn't reached the peasants, so Pukachev pretended to be a very alive Peter. Pukachev used his false identity to tap into the growing resentment among serfs and encourage them to attack their owners. What do you mean noblemen are being dragged from their beds? Their homes set on fire? Well, that sounds like a local issue. Let's keep it quiet while it resolves itself. But it didn't resolve itself. They burned the city of Kazan to the ground? How many? 20,000? Send in the army. I want this godless turmoil dealt with. Now. I had that impudent Pukachev put on trial and executed, along with hundreds of his followers. Thousands more were flogged and punished for daring to dissent. Catherine has succeeded in crushing the largest peasant revolt in the Russian Empire. But could she quieten her conscience? I tried to improve their living conditions and listen to their grievances. But they took my kindness as a weakness. What could I do? These peasants just couldn't be reasoned with. For all her talk about the rights of man, Russia's slave class was never liberated during Catherine's reign. Catherine's hard-headedness continued abroad, too. She went back to war with the Ottomans and annexed the Crimean Peninsula outright. Crimea was rightfully mine. Her relentless expansionism was a lifelong pursuit, a passion she shared with her new lover, Grigory Potemkin. Success over Crimea was his work. Potemkin was my twin soul. He first caught my eye on the day I took the throne. He rode up to hand me the sword belt for my uniform. I never forgot that. He was ten years younger, handsome, fearless. He became my closest advisor and the strategist behind my military interventions. Catherine and Potemkin were the ultimate power couple. But after a couple of years and rumors of an offspring, they ended their relationship, and then began another succession of favorites. Yes, I had many lovers. What of it? During her reign, Catherine invaded and brought most of what is modern-day Ukraine under Russian rule by snatching land from Poland and Lithuania. In 1794, she sent her troops deeper into Poland. When the Poles resisted, she ordered a crackdown that ended in a massacre in Warsaw. A third partition a year later wiped Poland off the map entirely. I added more than 500,000 square kilometers to Russia's land. The only thing that stopped her was her fading health. Catherine ruled until her death in 1796. She died of a stroke Age 67. She even wrote her own epitaph. Here lies Catherine II. When she came to the throne, she wished to do what was good for her country and tried to bring happiness, liberty, and prosperity to her subjects. 
She had a Republican spirit and a kind heart. It's a flattering self-portrait of an empress who, quote-unquote, neglected nothing in pleasing her nation. And she would indeed go down in history as Catherine the Great, a title she modestly or pragmatically rejected when she was alive. The unique combination of chance and sheer determination that enabled Catherine, a woman and minor noble, from provincial Prussia to lead the world's largest empire was never to be repeated. Catherine was Russia's longest ruling female leader, and she was also its last. Hindsight is narrated by me, Charles Dance. This series was produced by Sout Podcasts. Their team is producer Rana Darwood, associate producer Basan Samhut. Sound design by Taisir Kabani. Assembly sound editing by Yazan Kawas. This episode is written by Amy Gardner. Research and interviews by Joanne Bustani. Fact-checking by Rahaf Salahat. Special thanks to Professor Janet Hartley for speaking to us about the character. Catherine the Great is played by Trisha Bio. Extra voices played by Martin Cook. Voice coaching by Zian Ganma. Recording by Audio Process and MCS Recording. Additional research and fact-checking by Al Jazeera and Lynn Enwin. Script editing by Danilo Haveleska. Joe DeFrias is the executive producer of Special Projects. Juan Carlos van Meek is Al Jazeera's director of digital innovation and programming. Hindsight is a historical drama podcast. All dramatized scenes and dialogue are inspired by historical events, old interviews, and in some cases, new conversations with people close to the subject. <laughs>